0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Kathleen Wynne was in town to chat about the cancelled basic income pilot project. It's Carbon Tax Day. And also, we hosted the Mayor's Town Hall with Burlington Mayor Mary Ann Mead Ward. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An interesting uh, event coming up, of course, uh, in just a little while, as a matter of fact, downtown at the Public Library. Uh, and it has to do with uh, the uh, basic income pilot project. Now, we all know that, of course, as of last month, uh, the project was uh, done, kaput, finished by the Ford government. But uh, this is going to be an analysis and and, and maybe even uh, maybe a, a last-minute Hail Mary pass to see if we can do something about this. Uh, going to be at this uh, program and uh, joining us in studio right now. Uh, are two familiar faces that have been very, very upfront about this. Uh, Kathleen Wynne is the former Premier of the province of Ontario, now a Liberal MPP. It's good to see you again. Hi,
1: Bill. How are you? This is
0: a busy day for you.
1: It, yeah, but it's great It's great to be here. And the sun is shining in Hamilton, as it always does.
0: As it always does. <laughs> and uh, hopefully will for time to come. Maybe not for the recipients of this project, though. Exactly. And Floyd Maroneski was the CEO for uh, C4 Media, who uh, led the initiative. Remember, this is a story we told you about. Uh, about 120 Canadian CEOs that have been asking the Premier to reverse the cancellation of the Basic Income Project. Floyd, good to have you here today. Great to be here. Let's uh, start, Kathleen, with you. And, and uh, I guess the obvious question some people may have are they saying they're going to go over this again, the horse is out of the barn, the program's over. Why are you doing this?
1: Well, I'm here. I'm here today, Floyd, because there are, you know, about 170 people who are going to gather to talk about um, their participation in the uh, in the the pilot. And uh, what I've been saying, Bill, is that. Uh, the basic income is a good idea whose, I'd, whose time had come and whose time will come again. I mean, I, I honestly believe that, yes, today we're marking the end of this pilot project. But I believe that we are going to need to look at a sustainable system going forward. And what we have in place now is not. That's why we put the pilot project in place, to look at how we could better support people in their lives. and And support them in their lives so that they could... Complete a course so that they could start a business. um, And I know Floyd is going to talk a little bit about that. So that they could buy a winter coat or get their car back on the road. You know, there are so many reasons that making sure that people have the resources so that they can take part in the community is a good idea. And that's what this pilot project was
0: about. It's been described and and you've heard these criticisms of when you first tried to introduce this. Uh, and and that was a bit of a fight to get uh, to get some uh, some some support for that, uh, not just in the legislature but within communities as well, uh, that this is just some left wing whack job idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've tried to remind people that the bones for this whole project were actually uh, developed by Senator Hugh Siegel, Hughes who was a conservative, by the way. exactly. Uh, and he saw the the fortune and saw the benefit to doing something like this. There have been variations on the theme. Uh, of these sorts of projects in the past, but uh, Floyd, you lo- took an interesting perspective on this because a number of business groups said, "Don't do this. This is terrible. This is going to sm- it's going to hurt small businesses." You have a much
2: different attitude. Yeah, that's ridiculous. How could it f- hurt small businesses? What could be more pro-business than in, her- I- than in preserving and enhancing your customer base? When people who have less, they spend more proportionally of what they have, and we are facing an economy right now that, frankly, is leaving half th- half the population behind. We're seeing a slow erosion of the middle class. Due to 40 years of automation and globalization, we're seeing experts predicting like potentially up to half of all jobs being lost in the next 10 to 15 years because of increases of automation. And so we're seeing now we've already automated away millions of manufacturing jobs in North America. And what what happened to manufacturing people are soon going to be happening to call center workers, administrators, accountants, legal, finance, almost every industry will be affected by artificial intelligence. So one of the main reasons the CEOs aren't interested in this is because they want to preserve the economy. They want to preserve the middle class. They see this as a way to future-proof society. They see basic income not as, as the future of work, not only a way to get people to work.
0: The uh, the other criticism, Kathleen, I'd like you to address as well is that uh, that this rewards people for sitting on their duff and doing nothing. And and I know that started way back in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, you know, during the Harris government. It, you know, when all of a sudden he apparently thought that people that were on social assistance were a drag on the economy, uh, and and made up numbers about just how extensive that yeah. problem might have been. Uh, you are dealing with facts here, and uh, now we've had a number of panel discussions uh, in, in the last number of years since Hamilton was one of the cities for the uh, the private project. Uh, these are not people that are sitting on their duffs doing nothing. These are people that are usually working, sometimes two, three jobs, to try to make ends meet.
1: You know, I was in Brantford uh, when the flooding happened a couple of years ago, and so this was to this was at the beginning of the basic income pilot, and I was visiting one of the uh, the warming centers, one of the the centers that people were traveling to, and um, a, a man came running across the road. He'd been waiting because he had heard I was coming, and he came running across the road to tell me that he'd lost his job that he was looking after his mom, and he'd been accepted into the basic income pilot, and the basic income pilot was going to allow him to get his truck back on the road so he could actually start to earn some money. People don't choose to be poor, Bill. You know, I think we, we know that. There are all sorts of reasons that people... But there's in a poverty. myth out there. I know, I and know. And it's being
0: perpetuated by an awful lot of politicians.
1: But yeah, well, but that's a... Um, you know that's a, a self serving ideology that is not based in any evidence you know when when we went through all of this in the the Harris years there's about a you know one to three percent of people who are on social assistance where there's any uh, allegation of fraud at all not, so not thirty four percent as no, they had alleged no no I mean it's just ridiculous. People want to be independent people want to be able to look after their children and look after their families and look after themselves and so having some dignity in life uh, I think is you know it it is at the top of the list in terms of why it's important to uh, to look for different ways of of running our social assistance programs. But, you know, um, Floyd has made the argument about why this is good for the economy. This is this is about communities that will work better. When when I was um, making the decision to put this pilot in place, Bill, I had been part of the poverty reduction process in our government. We had set up a poverty reduction strategy. Depp Matthews had been uh, leading that process. And I, through that process, I looked at the uh, outcomes from the Mincome Project in Manitoba in the 1970s. And they were starting to see that people were healthier. They were completing education. They were going to school and staying in school. The community did better. Now, they didn't have final reports and they didn't have the the hard evidence which is one of the reasons that I wanted to get that evidence you know I wanted to look for those kinds of outcomes and I'm I'm not the researcher we had researchers set mm-hmm. up the uh, the evaluation process and we would have had some of that evidence at the end of the three years but the the fact that it's been cancelled mm-hmm. um, is is really a great shame because we could have we could have developed some of, th- th- of that evidence that would help us in the 21st century. Because that's what you're talking about, Floyd. You're talking about an economy that needs a different interaction between government and communities.
2: And, and frankly, there is a lot, a lot of evidence. Most people don't know this, but 105,000 people have already been through pilots in the last 40 years, over 16 experiments. And a meta study by Professor Richard Gilbert showed, analyzed those pilots, and found that there was no significant reduction in work. In fact, in cases of extreme poverty, there was an increase in work because people could afford the tools of their own emancipation. So, in, in my view, we're we're kind of beyond the need for more pilots. The evidence is out, and if and if that's not convincing enough, consider that we already have a national scale basic income in Canada. It's called the Canada Child Benefit. This started in 1944 under a different name, and the original uh, the original thought process for it was we need an economic stimulus we want to avoid a recession like what happened after world war 1 the government was implemented cash transfers to people in need specifically with the justification that it's an economic stimulus it will help us avoid recessions The baby so well, bonus. And, and and yeah, yeah and there's
0: yeah. the income support program for seniors i mean yeah. you know to suggest that well this is a ridiculous program we've been doing this for generations exactly. in this country right. the yeah. other element to this too that we did when we talked to some folks around here about the study is that if if when you top up incomes in this program I mean you give rich tax breaks that goes into some you know offshore place in the Cayman Islands these people spend money locally. Exactly. I mean, they use the money. They go shopping. They buy groceries. They buy clothing that may them before. And there is
2: unequivocal evidence of this. So, it, for those who aren't familiar with it, the Canada Child Benefit pays up to five hundred forty-seven dollars a month. I think it is per child for the poorest of families. And so, you, you're, you're talking about families with have two kids having over eleven hundred dollars a month as a cash stimulus that they're spending. And the governor of the Bank of Canada said in 2018 that this program resulted in, in GDP growth of half a percent. And since the increased payments started in summer of 2016. We've had three years of of lowering unemployment month over month. We've had three years of, of increasing GDP. We've 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 seen success. We haven't seen inflation go crazy. So here is a basic income we already have that has shown great success,
1: and, and, and three
2: hundred thousand children were yeah. lifted out of poverty. What's not to like? Grow the economy.
1: Exactly, and even <laughs> in even in Ontario, before the the Liberal government put this the enhanced child benefit, we had the Ontario child benefit. We put that in place, and mm. even that helped parents. Even though that was around a hundred bucks a month, it still helped parents with their kids you know so this notion that supporting people to help them to make a better life for themselves and to be a more uh, participant to be able to participate more in their communities that somehow that's a bad idea is just wrongheaded
0: yeah so what can be done at this stage uh, i i know you guys got a run because <laughs> you have to be an anti-library in about 15 minutes from now <laughs> but but i mean the pro- program officially ended uh, march 31st uh, the, there's no more checks being issued for situations like this uh, are we holding on to the thread that, uh, that public pressure can can make them change their minds? I mean, they have backed off with their autism funding a little bit and, and some of these other programs that they got a big pushback on. Uh, is there enough... People to, to push back on this one.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think I think we need to continue to push. I think we need to try. I think that um, we need to also be talking to the federal government about what their uh, what their position will be on this in the uh, in the immediate term. But one way or the other, I truly believe that we have. We have enough experience now to know that we can move forward with this idea. And uh, as I say, it's an idea whose time has come and will come again.
0: Well, and the federal government's an interesting aspect of this because there was some discussion that they may pick up the pilot project. Now, they haven't done that. Uh, But then there was some word out of Ottawa just before the budget that they might just think about putting their own pilot project together. Well, why not with this group that's already in place?
1: Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, my hope would be that they would, if they are going to do something, they would build on what, We've already done. Build on the work that's already yeah, been done yeah, here. It makes no sense to watch start, start again. In,
0: yeah, why start inventing the wheel again?
1: Exactly, exactly. So I, that's, certainly, that's certainly something that, uh, that I will advocate for, and for sure the people in the room this morning are going to be saying that.
0: Now, you're going to have people uh, that have been involved in the project. They're going to be telling their stories and maybe destroying. I, I know they're going to be destroying some of the myths that are out there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they're going to be talking about how this has changed their lives for the better and therefore changed the lives of their families and their communities for the better.
2: Uh, I also think this is not only the time has come, it's going to keep coming because we're going to be seeing autom- self-driving trucks pretty soon. We're going to seeing self-driving cars. We're going to see accounting and legal departments probably being downsized. There's, there's a software company in Toronto called Blue Jay Software working on amazing stuff. Probably not downsized, but it won't grow as fast. And this is what we see with the march of technology. We see company, the economy becoming more productive, companies becoming more productive, with less people needing to be hired. And that's why we're seeing a decoupling of wage growth from productivity growth. What does it matter if GDP grows if it's not actually increasing people's wages? And that's what does it matter if, if GDP growth is, is happening because machines are doing more of the work? Right now in Alberta, Suncore Energy has deployed self-driving self uh, heavy hauler trucks, driving, driving soft mining rocks around without people in it. Well, the moment self-driving trucks hit the road, I think the debate on this will be ignited. And hopefully it doesn't get too bad. Hopefully we don't have truckers doing truck stops, doing like blockades and stuff like that. Because these are people who on average are, are middle-aged, high school educated, bought their own trucks. What are they going to do when, when they can't compete with self-driving trucks? This is coming.
1: And the thing is, Bill, because we did this pilot, we've got 4,000 people across the province. We've got researchers. We've got people in communities who know that this is possible and who know that we can build on this. So I think, uh, you know, today one of my messages is this is not been a waste, you know, this is not something mm-hmm. that we just throw out and say oh well mm-hmm. we did that and now it's over we've got a foundation, we've built a foundation here and we can we can make these arguments and that's that's why eventually this will be implemented in one form or another
0: If uh, you'd like to take part in this, uh, it's not too late, 9.30 uh, this morning at Hampton Public Library and it's going to be going on for quite some time, some speakers and uh, some video presentations as well from other parts of the world that have also adopted policies like this. Right, yeah Should be fascinating, it's good to see you again, thanks so much for coming in great uh, to see you Floyd congratulations on your your drive on this and the initiative and uh, it's great to hear a voice from business that's very supportive of this well, too
2: it's, it's not only me the thousand economists in 1968 endorsed basic income said it's compatible with American values these 120 20 CEOs is just the beginning well,
0: yeah. yeah, I know, but starting to get more and more evidence that this government doesn't let the facts get in the way of their ideology. <laughs> uh, thanks. Good to see you guys in here.
3: <laughs> thanks, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: This is April Fool's Day, I know, but this is not a, an April Fool's joke. Uh, the carbon tax is in, effect, we knew this was coming for quite some time in uh, Ontario and three other provinces. Uh, we talked uh, in my commentary at ten this morning about uh, there are going to be some increases in, in fossil fuel costs, of course, for gasoline at the pumps and, and some other stuff, too. Uh, joining us to talk about the implications and maybe even the other side of this story, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, joins us here in studio. Uh, happy Carbon Tax Day. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I tried to find a car, but no, they didn't have them. But anyway, <laughs> a lump of coal. Just a lump of coal <laughs> is all I need. <laughs> That's about it. Well, I, they're going to tax the coal, too. Uh, but anyway, let, let's talk a little bit about the impact that this is going to have. And you and I were talking just before we, we started the segment here. Uh, Because I've I've seen a lot of social media stuff, people outraged that the price of gas is going to go up four cents uh, because of this. Uh, wasn't it already up
3: four cents and then went down, and it's really back up to where it was about a year ago? <laughs> yes. Bill, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually back you up a little further, and sure. then we'll, we'll launch into this. So the first question I always get asked is, well, why, why are we doing a carbon tax? And, and frankly, you have to go back to this whole idea of climate change that's going on here. We believe the bugaboo, the evil demon in the room, is carbon dioxide that humans are emitting. So we signed an agreement in Paris, we meaning Canada, signed an agreement in Paris, along with about 170 other countries in the world, that said we are going to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions by at least 30%, take them back to what they might have been in the 1960s. Okay, great. Now how do you go about doing that? Well, I could just ask people, okay, everybody, would you just do your part and reduce your carbon dioxide? And God bless, there are people who would voluntarily reduce it, but most people just ignore it and say, well, I'm not I'm not my problem, go after that guy over there, go after that guy over there. So how do we make everybody take responsibility for it? There are basically two approaches. What we had before in Ontario was called cap and trade. The system works like this. You put a cap on the total amount of carbon dioxide being emitted, and then over time, you reduce that cap. You say say, okay, it was 100 units last year, this year it's going to be 95 units, the year after that 90, and you force it down that way. If I'm a business or I'm a citizen and I I do things that reduces my carbon dioxide, I'm well below my individual cap so I can trade those extra credits to other people and there's a market for that. That's how they were going to do it. Uh, Doug Ford came into office and said, I don't like that system, so he dismantled it. So Ontario that did have a method to deal with carbon does not have a method to deal with carbon. So Mr. Trudeau, at the same time that he signed this agreement, had a meeting with all the provinces and said, if you folks don't do something about your carbon emissions, I'm going to oppose a carbon tax. How does that one work? Same concept here. If carbon dioxide is a bad thing, I'm going to put a tax on it. Since nobody likes to pay a tax, you're going to take steps to reduce the amount of carbon you produce. And it'll work the same way. You'll be incented to reduce your levels. So that's what we've got now today. Ontario didn't have a carbon uh, cap and trade system. When we did, and that we have to go back a year ago at this time, we did have one. Gas prices were about four to five cents a liter more than they are. Then Doug Ford took it off. It went down four to five cents a liter. You enjoyed that for a while. It's going back four to five cents a liter today. For me, in a fill up, it's going to cost me about a buck buck and a half every time I fill up the car.
0: Let me ask you right there, let us I don't want to go too far on a side road here about gasoline prices, uh, but they've
3: been going up for about the last six weeks
0: right? and, and that had nothing to do with carbon tax.
3: It had nothing to do with carbon tax. So uh, one of the basic causes <laughs> of gas prices to move up or down is the price of a barrel of oil. We have this nice little group in the world called OPEC, OPEC the oil producing cartel said they want to see oil prices between $60 and $70 a barrel, but six weeks ago they were $53 a barrel. So OPEC took some steps. In particular, they reduced the amount of oil they were producing. If you reduce the supply, you hope to drive up the price. And so far, it seems to be working. The price of a barrel of oil is flirting with $60 a barrel. Now, I know that doesn't seem like very much, moving from $53 to $60 a barrel, but that's more than a 10% price increase for the basic commodity that creates gasoline. That's why this weekend, we thought gasoline prices were going to go up about $0.03 cents a liter, just due to the basic cost of the of the fuel source. There's a third thing that's going to happen with gasoline prices that makes this all even more confusing and confounding. In about the middle of April, you know, don't hold me to April 15th, could be April 20th. The gasoline refiners are going to switch from their winter blend of gasoline to their summer blend of gasoline. And again, I'm not a chemist to go into great detail, but they change the additives, they change the blend of octanes to make it burn better in the summer, but it's more expensive. So that also is going to see the price of gasoline go up about four to five cents a liter. When you put it all together, by the end of April, we should be paying about 13, 14 cents a liter more. That's significant. I get that. Where it was a dollar seven, it's now a dollar twenty one. 21, but it will not all be due to carbon taxes. Uh, well, despite what some people are going to say, so I, I
0: just wanted to give you that. That's the kind of the thumbnail sketch about what's going to be happening at the pumps over the next little while. Uh, and we can add on to that, of course, how it just all of a sudden seems to go up every time there's a holiday weekend. But I mean, that's the summertime. Or overnight. Or and there's the, that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's get back to, the, to this, this carbon taxing policy. Uh, now, you was t- were telling us you just did your income tax. You, you got your rebate. I mean, even though the tax goes into effect today, you can apply this with your taxes
3: from last year, right? <laughs> right. So this this now starts to get a little more confusing. If you say, Marvin, carbon taxes are good. That should reduce my my use of carbon dioxide, emitting fuels, and other things like that. Well, why is the government giving me a rebate? What the federal government is saying is although they want to change our individual behavior, the big group of people they want to change is the corporate sector. They are not getting a carbon tax rebate. Instead, they're going to collect this money, they're going to keep 10% of it to create some special programs for small and medium-sized businesses. We'll call them grant programs, for lack of a better term. And then they're going to give the rest of it back to us citizens. Now I thought what they would do is then wait until you've collected some of this carbon tax and give it back to you, let's say on December 31st. But instead, we're getting a prebate. Watch that carefully. That's with a P bill prebate. I'm actually getting my carbon tax back before I spend it. So when you go to file your 2018. Uh, income taxes. I think it's Schedule 14 you can fill out. In my case, I got $154. Even though I have not spent a dime yet on carbon taxes, the government, the federal government is trying to ease the burden by giving the money up front. And I will certainly, that will cover all the extra cost of gasoline in the year ahead and most of the extra cost on my natural gas bill for the year ahead. So because there had
0: been some discussion when this bill was being formulated, are, are they going to issue checks? Uh, some situations, uh, the government was actually going to Receive the money. It was up to them how they wanted to spend it. Uh, I, I know, for instance, in uh, uh, when you want to go all the way back to to when this was still being formulated, uh, there was actually uh, some discussion here about the conservative government, who were the you know they were the opposition party at that time. Uh, Patrick Brown, in his people's platform, actually said, "Yeah, we're going to do that, uh, and we're going to use the money that we get from the federal government uh, to give you all tax break. You're going to reduce provincial taxes." Uh, of course, Doug Ford poo-hooed that, so you know we're kind of left in limbo like that. So, is there variation in, in other parts of the country
3: as Ab- to how abso- this happens? Absolutely. And and remember, this is only affecting four provinces. Six provinces have some method already in place of either a carbon tax or a cap and trade. And and then how do they collect and use the money? It varies by province. If I just take you back to what was going under the Liberal Wynn government, uh, what they were doing with the cap and trade is they were generating cash. They were selling these credits to people, but they are rather than giving us back to us as a check, if you will, they had programs. So if I had an older home and uh, I needed to put in energy efficient windows or I wanted to upgrade my insulation or, or do other energy appropriate things, I could apply for grants subsidies to help me do this work. And when Doug Ford did cancel the cap and trade, there were a lot of both individuals and, and small businesses and charitable organizations, churches, for instance, who had applied for these grants, who suddenly had them cut off. And they said, well, it's the right thing to do. We should be reducing our carbon footprint. But, boy, it was really nice when the government was helping us a little bit. So it goes beyond that
0: because boards of education yes. and, and yes. cities, including Hamilton, yes. were promised a big chunk
3: of that money to do infrastructure repairs for aging buildings and Absolutely. aging schools. And that money just disappeared disappeared so that's that's the other way to do it so what the federal government is doing they're still going to have some of those programs but they're going to be targeted not to individuals instead if you're an individual you want to reduce your carbon footprint you you just have to do it on your own Um, but you do get this little check to, to assist a little bit this is not a made in Canada policy this has been going on in other parts of the world and in some cases for 10, 15, 20 years. Parts of Europe have had carbon taxes for 10, 15, 20 years. So, and, and I don't mean to at all seem to be supporting one party versus another, but Doug Ford has labeled this a job killer. There's just absolutely no proof that this is any kind of a job killer. Now. Uh, in other places that have done this, we've not seen unemployment changes. We've not seen companies packing up and moving. Now, why he is saying this, and, it, and there is a little bit of legitimacy to his fear, is that we have this big neighbor to the south called the United States. When we signed the Paris Climate Change Accord, uh, along with us was Barack Obama, then President of the United States, and we, our policy was in lockstep with our neighbor to the south. But Donald Trump comes along, and let's just say Donald Trump is not a believer in climate change at all. So, the United States is not taking steps to reduce their carbon footprint. So the argument is that if I'm a business on the margin and I'm saying, well, do I locate in Canada, do I locate in the United States, I might be tempted to go to the United States because they don't have this carbon tax. But it, it, I, what I have to try to calm people down about is that this is such a small tax. Yes, it's there. Yes, it's a nuisance. But for me personally, it's probably going to make the difference of maybe 200 bucks a year. There's no business that's going to look at this at $200 on the margin and say, well, I'm going to Michigan rather than Ontario because of the carbon tax. So it's not a job killer. It's not going to scare people away. Well, I know when Ford made that
0: statement, and by the way, he didn't back it up with any facts or any, uh, uh, but he did say he quoted a Conference Board of Canada report that said there was going to be $300 million, something like that, uh, lost to the economy. Uh, But when you look at the, that that sounds like a big number, but it's less than 1%.
3: Oh, absolutely! You know, which,
0: which is which is a, a, an insignificant blip, really. Yeah,
3: and and Bill, I, I never want your listeners to think that I am being cavalier with with these large numbers. Uh, to an individual, a million dollars is a lot of money, but when you start looking at this relative to other things, when you look at relative to our GDP, a cost of two or three hundred million dollars, it just gets lost in the decimals. It's not that big, and yet let's look at it the other way around. Why are we doing this? Climate change. Every time you see a big hurricane through the United States. did you Do you listen to the bill it's going to cost, the cleanup bill, $3 billion, $5 billion worth of damage when there's flooding here in, in Hamilton uh, or other kinds of uh, factors that way? The bill is huge. So the way I look at it is I'm going to spend a little bit of money now. It's like an insurance policy, reduce my impacts on the climate because then I won't have the big bills down the road. I, I don't see this as being such an evil thing. Well, and we've seen examples of that even within the last 12 months or so.
0: There's horrific uh, California wildfires, the flooding that's going on in in the Midwest right now. Uh, you have to have administration down there saying, well, it's not because of climate change. It's got nothing to do with it.
3: Right. And, and our conversation, Billy, if you just don't believe that man is having an impact on climate or a lasting impact on climate, then anything you're trying to do to, to change the environment is just wrong. And so there will be people out there who just throw it all out. Uh, there was a nice gentleman in Ancaster who's been writing letters to the editor, to the Hamilton Spectator, in which he says that carbon dioxide naturally occurs in the environment. He's right. Absolutely right, but it's the percentage that we seem to feel there's some sort of, we'll call it a Cinderella zone, where as long as you keep carbon dioxide in this little zone, everything's fine, but it's been creeping up, creeping up in the last century in a way that we had not seen before, uh, and that's, that's the concern. So I also say to people, well, what's the harm in this? If if it turns out the scientists are wrong uh, and we just go back to the old level, why not? What's wrong with that? We spend a little bit of money, and we go back, uh, rather than an attitude that says, let's just do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, let the chips fall where they may. And this worries me very much when I think about future generations.
0: Well, because we had that mindset, did we not? Well, yeah, dump that sewage in that water. Why not? Go ahead. That's just a river. Who cares what goes in there? Uh, throw that stuff into the environment. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as one scientist explained to me when I had them on the program about a year or so ago, said the Earth is just one great big science experiment. Uh, you know, it's gases, it's this, it's that, and he says if you start to alter it, there's going to be an impact some way or another. And sometimes it's not positive.
3: Right. I, the only other quick note I would make, Bill, is if, if people don't think there's something that we can do around climate change... This got, this uh, province took a very important step, started over 10 years ago to shut down coal-fired electricity-generating plants. And yes, there was an impact on your bill. You paid more for electricity. But if you notice that we don't get those days in Hamilton that we used to have where that smog hung over. If you're an asthmatic, you can go outside and you can breathe the air and not choke. I think that's a step forward. Did it actually affect me? No, I'm not asthmatic. I I didn't suffer during those days. But I looked up in the sky and I said, that doesn't look right, and I haven't noticed it. We haven't had a smog alert in Ontario for three years. That's got to be considered a step forward. Yes, it costs me a little more in my electricity bill because I'm not burning the cheap thing coal to generate my electricity, but isn't that better for all of us? That's that's my philosophy here anyway. Now, I don't know who's going to win the next uh, U.S. election. That's not to, until November of
0: 2020. Uh, you know, we got a pretty good idea of who the incumbent's going to be, et cetera, And we don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. But if you listen to the chatter, not just from the Democrats, but from the Republicans outside of the White House, uh, climate change is going to be an issue in this upcoming election because I think the, the deniers are becoming fewer and fewer. And people. I think a lot of people are starting to understand it's there. I mean, we're not sure exactly how much it's there or how much of an impact it's having, but it's there. And yeah, we do have to do something about it.
3: Well, I, I'd like to think people are seeing that message. I, I have some online arguments, Bill, after I make an appearance on your show and other places, people will send me messages and, uh, you know, you're just full of smoke. It's not there. So there are certainly still deniers out there, but it's, it's hard to look around and not see evidence. Uh, even in my own life, you know, I, I, some people said this was a tough winter. I remember winters in Hamilton from 35 years ago. I remember some of those, for lack of a better terms, heart attacks, snowstorms. We, we had a couple of them this year, but I remember when we used to get six, seven, eight of those things. There is something going on. And so, therefore, my philosophy is, I can afford it. Now, again, I'm a relatively well-to-do individual. If you're poor, it's not as easy. But again, this is why the government is giving you this notice. They're giving you back whatever you pay on the carbon taxes. And look, if you're really, really upset when you go to the pumps, how about switching in that SUV for something a little a little more fuel efficient or that big honking pickup truck? Do you really need a big honking pickup truck? Maybe you go to something else. And when they start to come out, and they will within the next two or three years, electric vehicles with good range and easy to top up. Bill, if you wanted to recharge your tank of gas in an electric vehicle, it's 20% the cost of burning gasoline. You know, it, there are there are ways to reduce your footprint. Maybe they're not quite as common as you'd like today, but it's going to happen very quickly here, and I think people are going to start to jump on board. Well, it's been my
0: experience in the years I've been doing this and in a few years in public office, too. There, Everybody complains. Nobody says, hey, raise my taxes. Could you please? Uh, but the, the ones who complain about it, there's, there's two eligible groups, those who can't afford it, and, and that's, that's a concerning number, right, right. but the overwhelming majority are people that just don't want to. They just don't want to see a tax increase.
3: They can afford it. They just don't want to see it. That's all there is to it. And they don't They don't want any change from the status quo. You know, any, in my life in this city, I've noticed any time anyone proposes a major change from the status quo, we, we predict hellfire and brimstone falling from the skies, and then we make the change and we wake up the next day and yawn, pick anything you want to that's affected us. It, it, it's not normally had the big impact. People just imagine the worst. And I think that's the case with the carbon tax. We're going back to what we had before. With a cap-and-trade system it didn't kill the Ontario economy then and in fact 2018 uh, oddly enough was a great year for Ontario even with cap and trade from an economic standpoint it doesn't have to be the killer that we all want it to be I think well and our premier of course has still committed 30 million dollars to
0: fighting this in court that, that hasn't started yet Uh, and uh, we just found out over the weekend that he's about to undertake a a massive television advertising campaign to slam the carbon tax, Uh, by the way, being paid for by taxpayers' dollars as well. The, The irony in this whole thing, though, Marvin is here's a premier who has slammed the media as the enemy of the people for the last little while, but now he's
3: turning to the media <laughs> to say, all right, help me to get to, to get rid of this thing. Well, there's another reason why he's doing this, Bill. There was a report on the weekend, a poll that was done in Ontario around Ontario's uh, environmental action plan that discovered that most people don't think Ontario has one. Now, Doug Ford says he does. There was some announcements about it, but the details are all so foggy, people say, I don't really know what he's doing instead. Even Andrew Scheer was in Mississauga yesterday slamming the, the carbon tax. But he didn't seem to have his own answer for, well, what are you going to do to reduce carbon dioxide? I don't think we can let anybody off the hook. I know you don't like this, but what is it you do like? Let me compare and make an intelligent decision. It's not enough to rail against this. That Ipsos poll that you just referenced, by the way, was commissioned by the Ford government. Uh,
0: Only 27% of the people that were polled thought they were on the right track. Uh, so that tells you something about where their policies are too. <laughs> always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroot School of Business.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: It's time for the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward is with us here in studio. Good morning. Good to see you again.
4: Great to be here. I'm As gonna, always. I, I, I always
0: ask how you know what you're up to, but I mean I follow on social <laughs> media. And, I mean you're you're everywhere Facebook, birthday parties, this, uh, cutting <laughs> ribbons, doing all sorts of stuff.
4: I, I feel like a pinball machine, <laughs> yeah. but you know what? It is—it's uh, awesome. I do wake up every day, and uh, there's a spring in my high-heeled step, as I say. <laughs> so well, I love I, this. I we, love serving the community.
0: It's—it's it's been a little longer than usual to have these town halls, but the reason why is because you're booked.
4: Yeah, it, i am doing—I'm doing my work for the people. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway,
0: good to have you in here. Because we got a lot to talk about here. Some issues that have come up, of course, uh, with the uh, Burlington Council. Uh, and some provincial issues that are going to have an impact mm-hmm. on, uh, on what's going to be happening and uh, we, we can take them in no particular order but I do want to talk about the fact that uh, the cannabis legislation of course it passed some time ago and uh, we are anticipating Uh, the opening of Legal Shops, and uh, you are actually going to have one opening today.
4: We have the first in in the region, I think, uh, that's opening today. Yeah, Realm Cannabis at the corner of uh, Fairview and Walker's Line. If folks are familiar with our geography, it's in a retail plaza. It is more than two kilometers away from any sensitive use. So when we first saw the application come in, uh, we reviewed it. Our planning staff reviewed it. I looked at it, and we thought, you know, if if we're going to put it anywhere, this is a good spot.
0: What kind of pushback did you get from community?
4: Well, initially there was nothing um, because our community, we did do a lot, and, and we've talked about this on the show, but we did do a lot of uh, c- consultation. We had a town hall. We had a survey. Uh, of course, we had the election, and it was a big issue when I was knocking on doors, and overwhelmingly I heard support in the community to have – uh, retail stores. People were concerned about the location uh, being too close to things like schools and, and being very concerned about not having too many in a particular neighborhood or particular area. Um, so, so when the, the announcement first came out, there was nothing from, from the community. Um, subsequent to that, the, uh, the folks at Assumption High School, which is more than two kilometers away, uh, expressed some concern and, uh, and wrote to myself and expressed some concern on social media about the location. And um, my, my position is, you know, kids don't even walk to school two kilometers. They're, that's outside the busing distance. They're not walking down to this area. It's not within what I would consider a, a sensitive distance from that school. So, um, so that was all that we, that we heard.
0: About the only traversing I see students doing, and I'm not trying to be, be glib about this, is, is usually about a block away to the local <laughs> Tim Hortons uh, to, exactly. grab, to grab something, and I don't even know if they're allowed to do that. But I see it. Uh, I, I pass about three different schools on, on my way home, and I can see that just around the noon hour. Uh, I, I don't see that there's going to be a, 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 you know, an organized march down to the cannabis store. First of all, according to the law, they can't even get in the front door
4: they can't and that that was the argument that I made folks were saying well you know this is going to put our children at risk and I said actually this makes our kids safer because first of all they can't get in the front door and and the penalties are very severe if you are caught uh, breaking any of the rules around cannabis your license is gone and that's it you're done and they know that so they want to be in business to serve the clientele that they know is coming which is adult uh, users and uh, you know and So if we can also provide A legal regulated product that that people know what's in it they know where it comes from they know how strong it is you don't get that if you're buying it illegally on the street and so um, you know this will make our community safer over time I am quite confident this will eat into the black market sale of cannabis and overall our community will be safer and it is a legal product and there are legitimate uses I'm not a user (laughs) I don't smoke pot but but I recognize that that in my mind, it's really no different than alcohol. We allow that. And um, and in some cases, it has medicinal benefits that alcohol doesn't have. So I don't think we can be hypocritical about allowing the one and not the other just because it's been around. Alcohol has been around a lot longer.
0: Yeah, and that's been the premise for me too. I mean, I'm, I don't have any skin in this game. I don't use the stuff. Don't plan on using it any time or ever for that matter. Uh, but I do understand because uh, of some of the work we've done with some of the uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, it's, it's, it's now a very, very popular and actually very recognized form of pain management, better than opioids. Very
4: much. I, uh, and that was the stories that I heard literally knocking on doors. People that, I, you know, I'd come to their door, there's nobody looking, they wouldn't ever come to a town hall and identify themselves as somebody that uses cannabis. Uh, this one lady said that she would take cannabis oil, and sprinkle it on her salad. It was her form of salad dressing. Uh, Another friend of mine, his mom got off of opioids, which are which are lethal if you don't take them in the right dosage and extremely addictive. She got off of high, high dosages of opioids with the help of uh, cannabis and CBD oils. So I was very persuaded by that. And again, these are people that are are not going to show up at a town hall and reveal themselves to the public as users of this product because of the stigma that is still attached. We need to get rid of the stigma, and recognize that um, that, that people have a legitimate reason to have this product, which is why it was legalized. And I also don't begrudge people their recreational use of it any more than I gr- begrudge people their recreational use. Of alcohol within proper parameters. We don't, you know, don't drive drunk, don't drive impaired. Uh, but we haven't seen an increase even from um, from our local police officers in, in impaired um, drug use. It, that's always been with us. So there hasn't been an uptick.
0: Uh, you, you talked about intensity, uh, some concern, and we've heard that in Hamilton too. But uh, you know, we don't want uh, like 15 of these things within three blocks of each other. Right. How does how does the city council try to control something like that?
4: Well, right now we can't, and so um, I'm a member of a small task force uh, through the Large Urban Mayors Caucus of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. Uh, this is a caucus of municipalities that are uh, over 100,000 people that are two tiers. So uh, there's a separate caucus for folks of a certain size that are single tier. Uh, But all of the mayors got together and about half of us have opted in, half have opted out. So we formed a task force, which I sit on of four of us to opt in, to opt out to try to advocate to the province, because whether we allowed retail cannabis in our store, in our, in our borders or not, we have shared concerns around the location and the concentration. And so, so actually we had a conference call this morning and we're starting to put the, uh, the details together in terms of an advocacy piece that we will make first to our fellow mayors and councils to to get their support and then send it to the province to say, look, we ideally let municipalities decide because each community is a little different. But if you want a standard set of rules across the province, then then make the changes. And here are some of the things that we want to see uh, you do. Ontario-wide because the regulations are simply not where they need to be for, uh, as you mentioned, for the concentration of stores and and the list of sensitive uses is nowhere near robust enough. Uh, it, it eliminates schools, but not, for example, a private school or a tutoring place that might cater to very young kids, that kind of thing. So so there's some gaps in the legislation right now.
0: The, the concern, of course, uh, with just about any piece of legislation, when especially the provincial and federal, is one size fits all, which, right. which, which is convenient for them. Because uh, it, it makes it, you know, a lot easier for them to simply say, yeah, here it is. But I mean, that would mean that the same set of standards would apply to, to Stainer as it does to Burlington. And that, right. you can't do that. That's apples and oranges.
4: Well, and that's why our first position is municipalities should decide. We, uh, you know, we, we get the bill for the for the bylaw enforcement, for the, you know, the permitting. We get the bill to make sure that, uh, you know, that it that it's done in the proper way, but we don't get the resources and we don't get the control. And so we believe that we should be uh, we should be deciding these things because we know our communities best.
0: Well, and we'll see how that rolls out. Is there a concern though that uh, that because we're in kind of a a gray period right now where they've allotted licenses right mm-hmm. now, but that's that's not going to be that way forever. Eventually, there's going to be an open market. Are you concerned about what might happen then?
4: Well, that's why we have to get out in front and advocate to the province for some uh, for some greater controls for municipalities and and also um, you know better regulation if they're going to keep the controls. I you know I think the market will decide. What uh, you know, how many stores come? Um, thankfully, you know, Hamilton has opted in. We've opted in, Toronto's opted in, but there's a bit of a bit of a hole in Mississauga and Oakville yeah. right now. so so, you know, those folks may come west to Burlington or to Hamilton to uh, to purchase this product. I, I think it'll eventually get itself sorted out., um, and I think the even the the municipalities that have opted out uh, are probably, and, and some of them will even say this, you know, it's an inevitability that it will come. We just need to see how this rolls out first and then and see if we can advocate for uh, more local control. Uh, but I think everybody recognizes that this is coming, right? And we need to we need to be smart about it. And, um, you know, and I in the long term, I'm not I'm not concerned about this. I think the people that are using it now for legitimate reasons will continue to I you know, I don't see people rushing out to to use this product if they didn't before.
0: Well, and there was a study that was done. I can't remember which one of the polling agencies, one of the national ones. I think it was something like 79% of the people said that once it was legalized, and that, of course, has already come and gone, uh, it's not going to change their behavior. If they weren't doing it, they're not going to do it. No. If they are doing it, they're going to. So this is this is no big deal.
4: I, I think, uh, yeah, I think there's been a lot of fear-mongering, and I think they, the stigma attached to cannabis is really, you know, in marijuana and pot. And, and people being stoned and, you know, that that's all it is. And that's not all it is. And and so for me, it's been a huge education in terms the, of the legitimate uses for this product, and those were persuasive to me.
0: Well, and there are going to be people that abuse it. Just as people abuse alcohol, just as uh, some abuse carbohydrates. I mean, you know, there's, <laughs> a, there's, there's a concern about that. Yeah. The other one I just wanted to touch on, and then we'll, we'll leave this behind for, for the time being, uh, you mentioned the policing costs, and that was one of the the issues that was brought up consistently. Are we going to opt in or opt out. We're going to be saddled with all of these policing costs. Uh, I assume you're monitoring that, but uh, you know, I, I wondered exactly what they were trying to refer to. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not like there's going to be a police officer in front of every store. There isn't a police officer in front of every LCBO.
4: No, there there wouldn't be. And I think where um, I think there's two two parts to the policing. One is the continued enforcement of impaired, whether, but that's, you know, that's ongoing. That is ongoing. So there's not going to be an increase. We haven't seen an increase and the police have said, you know, we will continue to monitor this. The folks that are going to drive impaired, whether it's opioids, which is a much bigger issue actually than cannabis, Uh, cannabis or alcohol, which still continues to be a major uh, issue. Um, You know, they don't, they don't see cannabis, you know, all of a sudden um you know ba- bankrupting the police service so uh so that so they're okay on that front i think where it will make a difference is and and hamilton had this recently where there was an illegal pot shop that opened and it had to be closed down so that's a policing matter in part that might be a bylaw enforcement matter or a joint a joint issue that municipalities and the police force have to deal with so there's going to be additional costs for that but again i mean in hamilton you've been dealing with that for some time there's the, been the these illegal police, shops for a while
0: the chief of the police told me at one time, I think there were only over 70 illegal yeah. shops, and I think it's yeah. down to the low 20s now. Right. It's still a problem, but I mean, to suggest that there's going to be increasing police costs, it seems to be going the other way. I, I think because so. Because people don't want to be, have an illegal shop because they're never going to get a license.
4: Exactly. And if they, so so the, the legislation is actually helping with the illegalities. Right? It provides a legal avenue for people that want to sell it and want to buy it and, it. and also the consumer can be informed about whether the place that they're frequenting is a legally uh, constituted shop. And, and I think most people you know, here in Ontario, we're, we're a pretty law-abiding group of folks. You know? We, we want to make sure that we're supporting a legal business. And, uh, and so the, the customers will also be the regulators of that.
0: Well, uh, we've been talking about this in the hypothetical for about the last uh, year and a half or so, and uh, obviously with the store opening today, uh, we can have some real data, real-time data, about what's actually going on there. So it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how that happens.
3: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Mary Ann Mead Ward is with us here in studio. Uh, phone calls, emails, and tweets uh, in just a couple of seconds. A number of issues that, uh, that I wanted to get to when you were with us last time. Uh, we we're talking about the imposition of the interim control bylaw for the downtown mm-hmm. area. There's a report coming to your council meeting tomorrow.
4: Yes. So the the interim control bylaw catches everything unless you exempt it. So if you want to do an interior renovation and you need a building permit, if you want to put a porch on your uh, you know your back deck and you and you need a permit, uh, that was never our intent, and we knew that when we passed it. And Steph said, look. You know, we've got time to fix this, so get the interim control bylaw in place. We'll go back and do more detailed analysis of what really should be exempt. So that's the report that we're having coming forward tomorrow. So it will exempt people that are just doing a renovation because it doesn't change the use of the property. And the interim control bylaw is to look at the use in relation to. The downtown being designated as a mobility hub and a major transit station area because of our bus shelter. <laughs> were, were, so, you, were you
0: getting a lot of pushback?
4: <clears throat> uh, there were a couple of folks that discovered because they'd put in, you know, for work to be undertaken in the spring mm-hmm. and summer. I did hear from two people who said, you know, I can't move forward. And I said, just you know, sit tight. We're gonna we're gonna fix that. You you know, uh, the report's coming forward next Tuesday. So uh, so they were fine.
0: You wonder sometimes, you know, when you throw a blanket policy like that about the implications, and I I guess Mm -hmm. you can't consider all options. There's always going to be somebody, and we thought, oh, geez, we didn't think about that. Uh, But at least you're showing the flexibility on that.
4: Well, for those things, because it was never intended to capture those smaller uh, renovation or interior projects that was never the intent of the interim control bylaw it's the the bylaw is really to deal with the glut of applications that we are getting that are wildly divergent from not only our existing official plan which is in conformity to provincial policy statements uh, we did an intensification study after places to grow we're all squared away in our existing plan but it bears no relation, even to the adopted plan, which we got back from uh, from the region, which gave generous, in my view, overdevelopment provisions. The applications that we're seeing are well beyond even that, and so there's a complete disregard for uh, for any of our planning instruments and the the. Obviously, we've ta- you know we've talked about this before, but the the deal breaker, the game changer, was the Addy proposal for twenty six stories on a parcel that is zoned uh, four to eight stories, and they got it from the OMB. Um, we asked for a review of that decision. They reviewed it, and we got the notice last November, so just a couple of months ago that they felt that this was appropriate and case closed, the The decision stands. But the rationale was because this is the kind of appropriate development we want to see in land use that we want to see in a mobility hub in a major transit station area. So that had never been used as a defense up until that point uh, in quite that way to wildly go beyond uh, what our existing plans were. So so we said, okay, we got a, we got a problem here because... Um, that just doesn't make any sense this is not even though it's designated a mobility hub this is not regional rail this is not you know the kind of density in terms of the of the transit use we have one bus from hamilton i think it's the number 11 (laughs) that comes in there who who
0: made the designation to make that a transit hub
4: the province did so because you
0: can stand right at that corner and look around and say really
4: yeah well exactly and residents have been saying that for for some time and so when we were reviewing and updating our existing official plan one of the motions that I brought forward about a year ago was to remove that designation at the time we were told that we would need provincial approval that we couldn't just you, you know unilaterally do that we have since learned in conversations with our local member of provincial parliament that we can actually just vote to remove that classification and so that was great news uh, to our Are you our planning community. on doing that? Uh, well, absolutely. That will be on the table during our discussions because in in my mind, this is completely different in terms of the infrastructure than what we see at, let's say, the Burlington GO station. Mm-hmm. So at the Burlington no, that's a
0: mobility hub. That is a mobility <laughs> hub.
4: That's where it can take the density. You've yeah. got regional rail. You've got GO buses coming in. You've got, you've got multiple lanes. You've got five lanes of vehicular traffic close to the highway. Um, it's completely different different, it's intended, you know, you wanna put density where people do have transportation options, otherwise you have a traffic nightmare. And that's what we're going to get downtown and the residents have been, you know, raising that alarm. If the plan, uh, even the adopted official plan, which I didn't support, but certainly the plans that are coming forward, or the applications that have been coming forward that bear no relation even to that plan, that that we will kind of shut down our, our downtown from a from a bo- mobility standpoint. So it, it's not the right architecture, it's not the right infrastructure for that kind of... Um, for that kind of use downtown, so that's that's what triggered the study. We will f- we will go through the process to determine what it should be. But I can tell you that that whether or not this uh, should remain a mobility hub designation will absolutely be on the table for discussion. And I suspect, um, well, I'm not going to prejudge those conversations, but it's going to be a discussion that we have.
0: But but you've got this this top-down government from the provincial government. It's not just you. I mean, most communities do because of OMB rulings, et cetera. Uh, And you've also got the regional government who had some concerns about your official plan. Is there any concern at all that you feel as if you're losing control of how you're growing or how you're supposed to grow?
4: (laughs) Oh, we lost control a while ago. And that's, you know, that that was one of the key uh, features of my campaign platform and why I was elected and why we saw five new faces around the table was we need to regain control. And there was this um, attitude by the previous counsel that I I never believed. It was, I think, well-meaning and well-intentioned that, you know, let's avoid fighting it out at a tribunal and wasting everybody's time and money. Let's see if we can negotiate a solution. It sounds great if you are willing to say no and stand firm. But what ended up happening is developers would just show up at, uh, at the podium at a committee meeting and say, I'll take you to the board if you don't give me what I want. So there was very there was next to no incentive to work with the city to come up with something more reasonable. And the council at the time was very hesitant to fight it out at the board. And we should have. You know, people sometimes say, well, what's different in Oakville? Well, there's a bunch of things, but one of the things that Oakville signaled very early on is we are we will fight to defend our plan. We don't want to. We don't want to waste your time or our money and our time, but we'll fight you if we have to. And so they got that message that, okay, we better, we, they're serious about this. In Burlington, it was kind of a free-for-all, and, and it was, you know— well, how 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 much do you want to not take us to the board, and that's not a, a strong negotiating position. And so, uh, and then by having voluntarily given away extra height and density, significant in some cases, two, three, and four times what was in our existing plan, uh, those became the new minimums. Those decisions started to set precedence and then every new application was that and then higher. That became the floor, not the ceiling for the next application. And, and, and that's forward. important.
0: A lot of people may have the feeling these are all done on a one-off basis. As soon oh, as you no. allow 35 stories someplace, the next person's going to come along and say, well, you did it for them.
4: Absolutely. and And so we've undermined the the decisions of the previous council has undermined our own ability to make those decisions and stand firm and not be taken to the board and not be overruled on the board. So so we're you know, we're trying to level set that and, and get it back on track so there's a balance of of citizen voice and, and council and staff voice and the development industry. We do wanna work with them. But but that hasn't been uh, that that hasn't been the response that we've had up until now. So um, so so we're gonna we're gonna rebalance the scales here.
0: Well, it'll start with this report to kind of fine tune what's going on. Uh, when do you anticipate sitting down with some of the people from the development industry to, to kind of set the ground rules?
4: So, um, I, I meet with them regularly. The, those are, um, uh, I have a log, uh, people can see who I've met with. I actually met with, uh, uh, somebody from the Plata Corporation because they own a lot of land in Burlington and, and my message to, uh, to everybody in the development industry. And I think this is the one thing, uh, right out of the gate that we all agree on. If you like our proposal and the answer is yes, let's get there quicker. If the answer is no. Let's get there quicker because it's this middle place of, well, we need more studies and we need more this. And then, you know, nobody knows there's uncertainty. Is it going to be yes? Is it going to be no? You know, let's get to yes quicker. And let's also get to no quicker because because time is money. And uh, and so that's what I've committed to to the industry. And they're fine with that. You know, they may, we may agree whether it should be yes or no. And I suspect we will, I suspect we will have those, you know, discussions, but, uh, but everybody wants to get to, to where we want to get quicker because then if it's no and we're firm, they, they don't invest, um, you know, over-invest in a bunch of studies and spend a lot of time for a losing cause, they can move on to something that is gonna be more successful. And that's the message that I wanna send um, to to the development community, but also to, more broadly speaking, that was the message I sent at our town hall uh, last Thursday, our kickoff town hall for the red carpet, red tape task force. We wanna make sure that if we, that that we, we speed up the pace of approvals and businesses to get to yes or no quicker, either way, and they were that was so, they were so receptive to that message.
0: Well, because things have evolved, and I know that the tribunal now is taking their place at the OMB. But it got to the point where that wasn't supposed to be a place for adjudication for right. stalemates. It was it was a tool being used by one side over the other to simply say, "I'll take you there."
4: Absolutely. And and the resident, I mean, we did see some attempt at reforming that body by the previous government. But in actual fact, we've now had a couple of decisions come out of the LPAT, and they're no different than the previous OMB. And I'm of the mind now that this tribunal has outlived its usefulness completely, that it 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 is a Disincentive to work with a community, a council, and staff to come up with something agreeable. And I don't think that was ever the intent of it. It disincentivizes negotiation. If the development community knows that the final word is with council, then make your best case, bring uh, council, the community, and staff along make us, you know, give 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 it your best shot, give us your best pitch, but do it reasonably within the official plan context and participate every time we do a review every five years, we review our plans. So uh, so we need to get the incentive back into respecting and working with the community, which has been completely taken out. So so I'm of the mind the province should just throw it over the side and get rid of the the entire tribunal altogether.
0: Well, we'll see if they uh, take that under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's, uh, very quickly, I want to touch on something you and I talked about about a month ago, of course, and this is the, the province's regional government review. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they announced this, there was a great deal of concern uh, about where this might lead, and some su- suggested that it was just a precursor for more amalgamations. Uh, y- now, you were come out pretty strongly about this, Mm -hmm. as as some of your companion uh, municipalities in Halton have as well.
4: Absolutely. So we just, uh, at the region of Halton, so that includes Halton Hills, Milton, Burlington, Oakville, passed unanimously a resolution which we are sending to the province that we are not interested in a city of Halton. We're not interested in amalgamation. We're actually the gold standard in efficiency of government and cooperation between different levels of government. And we have a AAA credit rating, uh, which the province doesn't even have. So we'd be happy to educate them about how we do it <laughs> and, <laughs> and bring them along to be more uh, efficient. But each of the individual municipalities has Uh, prior to that also passed our own resolutions to that effect with our local context in there and and Burlington Council did that. Uh, What's also happened in Oakville and now just happening in Burlington there is a citizens group that is formed called We Love Burlington Stop Amalgamation. They are on Facebook. They have started a letter writing campaign. They are asking the um, member for Burlington to create a petition so Oakville MPP has done that, created a petition that he'll bring uh, around the, you know, really residents opposed to amalgamation. Uh, so we're doing that as well. There's a lawn sign campaign that's about to get started. So the, the citizens are very adamant that it's working well, don't fix what's not broken. And my message when I in, in correspondence, but also when I met with the two advisors was, Look, focus on those municipalities where there's known challenges or problems or municipalities that are asking for changes like Mississauga. They are asking to be yeah. single tier. they are almost eight hundred or over eight hundred thousand people. That makes sense. Don't fix what's not broken. Focus where you need to. It just
0: there's a mantra, and the Toronto experience, I think, is something that probably sends shivers down a lot of municipalities because of the, the arbitrary fashion in which that was done.
4: Absolutely. And, and
0: it seems to be on the old fashioned and, and now proven to be a wrong notion that that's that smaller means better government. Now let's knock off the number of elected officials, and you'll have a more efficient government. Uh, the amalgamations that happened in the 1990s, and hey, here in Hamilton, we were one of them. Absolutely. Uh, it it, it costs more.
4: It it does. There was actually and you can find this on the citizens, uh, Facebook page. There's a link to the Fraser report, a study that was done of pre and post regionalization amalgamation. And it, it showed that costs in fact went up. We saw that in the Toronto case and local representation actually goes down because you have each representative has to represent more people. And, uh, so you're more busy. You have less time for each of your constituents. And, you know, in Burlington prior to this, uh, in fact, we had residents calling for a larger council. We are the smallest council in Halton. We're the smallest council of a municipality our size anywhere in Ontario and possibly Canada. Uh, seven members for 185,000 population roughly. So we are we can't get any smaller. And in fact, the citizens are saying we want more representation and um So we're not having that conversation right now, but that's the mood in Burlington that, uh, you know, that they, they don't want fewer elected representatives because they recognize it reduces their voice and their impact.
0: Well, and and we've seen so many different examples that there is no substantive argument to be made right now that there's there's inefficiencies that that come from from amalgamating. I mean, there there are some things that can work and and work better because of that, but the costing is the concern. And and I got to tell you, as somebody who went through that back in in, in two thousand when the city of Hamilton amalgamated. Uh, a lot of these were unforeseen costs that mm-hmm. we thought, oh, didn't see that one coming. Yeah, uh, you know. But uh, for instance, I mean, if, if you know these public works people are making fifteen bucks an hour and these people are making twenty bucks an hour, guess what the standard's going to be? Exactly. When you amalgamate, uh, uh, so that, that that's a cost that increases, and and uh, we didn't expect to see that sort of thing. And there's all sorts of, of of rationale for that. And the Toronto example is a great one too. I mean, they reduced the size of council. First thing the new Toronto Council did was increase their operating budgets.
4: Absolutely. As
0: I said, we've got more work to do and more ground to cover. We need to hire more staff.
4: Well, and if you have one uh, elected representative that has far more constituents, you need more staff. So all you've done is download representation to unelected staff. So it's better to have the the right number of elected representatives because they're directly accountable to the public. Uh, You know, we've looked at at regionalized services. We have regional police in Halton. We have regional paramedic services. Uh, We have a number of things that are at the regional level. I'm very interested in a conversation around regionalizing transit in some way. Um, So I think that's an opportunity. Uh, People have said, well, why is fire not regional if, if police and paramedic? You know, I think you know, that's a question on on people's minds right now. So, you know, we can talk about individual services, but to dismantle the structure would be going backwards because there are issues that we face in Halton and beyond that are bigger than any one municipality to deal with. They cross borders. So, for example, our social services is at the regional level. Our waste management is at the regional level because what happens at the regional level, um, well, th- these issues cross borders, right? They don't they don't stop at borders. And same with transit, yeah. you know, anymore. So I I think to get efficiencies, that's a real opportunity, and that's something that we've we tabled even previous to the regional review. Uh, that I'm very interested in having a conversation about.
0: Got about a minute left. Have you had an opportunity to talk to Mr. Fenn or Mr. Sealing, the two gentlemen that are going around the province? We, we
4: were actually the first up. Oh, there you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> they, came, they came to Halton first, I like to say, because they want to see what's working. Um, but yeah, I was the second or third mayor to, uh, to talk to them and uh, have subsequently written to them as well as sending them both our Burlington and, and our region of Halton um, correspondence. So they've gotten the message loud and clear. Not to fix what's not broken. And there may be some opportunities for, uh, you know, streamlining or uploading services to the regional level, but not dismantling the regional government. That's a non-starter with us.
0: Burlington Mayor, Mead Ward. thanks as always. Great having you in here again.
4: Great to be here.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on
3: 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And
3: make sure that you rate and review.